Uh, I wonder how many of you have ever had an ingrown toenail? <laughs> yeah. Uh, or an ingrown hair, maybe. Uh, you hear the word ingrown. Is that, you know, is, is it a healthy thing to have an ingrown toenail? Is it uh, pleasant? We think of the word ingrown and we're, we're usually thinking of things that are sick or sore or festering or infected. It's not a pleasant thought. If something's ingrown, then there's something terribly wrong. And what happens when you have something that's ingrown like a toenail or a hair is that it, it curves in on itself and it ultimately starts hurting itself. And it's a bad thing. And what is true of toenails and hairs can also be true of churches and families. It's very easy for a church to focus all of its energies back inward, back onto itself. It's easy for a church or a family to become a cul-de-sac, to become a dead end, where all of the life and all of the energy is curved back onto itself. And when that begins to happen in a church or a family, the church or the family starts to fester and to become infected. If all of my focus is on my family, my church, my brothers and sisters, then my focus is ingrown and ultimately disobedient. If, if our focus as people is ingrown, insulated, if all of our focus is on, is on circling the wagons and building our walls and fortifying our defenses, then we are absolutely disobeying the God of heaven and earth. Now, how can I say that? What biblical authority do I have to say that having a primarily inward focus for a man, for a family, for a church is blatant disobedient to God. There's all kinds of places we could go. Um, maybe the most obvious evidence is Jesus' words in Matthew 28 that you all know, probably. You know them so well. We know them so well that they have no power for us anymore. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We all know those words. And Jesus Christ, with his authority, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, has commanded us to stop living for ourselves. And to turn out of ourselves and to disciple the nations. And it's impossible to obey that command and at the same time live in our own little bubbles, focusing on our own little worlds and our own little concerns and our own comforts. But that is exactly what we tend to do. What comes naturally for us is to be ingrown and insular and self-centered and inward looking. And that is absolute disobedience. Now, I want to spend some time this morning... <coughs> thinking about what causes that kind of disobedience. Where does it come from? What's it look like? Why do we fail to have an outward focus? Turn with me to Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. Again, familiar words. We all, if we've been in church for any amount of time, we know these words. And the danger is always for familiar words to lose their, their meaning to us because we thread them through our eyes and we think we know that what they say and we think we've already thought about that and we miss it. Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus speaking. 
giving direct commands that have direct bearing on our relationship to our unbelieving neighbors, our unbelieving friends, our relatives, our co-workers, all those people out there. He says, you are the salt of the earth. <coughs> but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He uses two images to describe what Christians are, the images of salt and light. And he does not command us to be salt, does he? Does he command us to be salt? Does he say, you must be salt? He says, you are salt. He doesn't command us to be light. He says, you are light. This is what you are. This is where we have to start. We have to start with an understanding of what Jesus Christ actually says we are. The question is, what kind of salt are you? What kind of light are you? You will be salt. You will be light. What kind? It's the same kind of thing in in, uh, Ephesians 5. You know, when God talks to husbands and he says to husbands, you are the head of your wife. He doesn't say, you must be the head of your wife. He says, you are. The question is, what kind of head are you going to be? Are you going to be one that really states the fact of what Jesus Christ is like? Or are you going to be a a head that lies about Jesus Christ? But you are the head of your wife. The question is, what kind of head are you? Same thing here. The question is not, are you salt and light or not? The question is, what kind of salt? Are you salty salt? Or tasteless salt? Are you visible light or hidden light? <clears throat> Let's think about these two images. What would tasteless salt, what would a tasteless salt Christian or a tasteless salt church look like? What is the purpose of salt? If the purpose of salt is to flavor and infiltrate and change and preserve then tasteless salt does not flavor and infiltrate and change and preserve. So what would a church look like that does not bring to its community the characteristics of saltiness? I think a tasteless church is a church that adapts and accommodates and compromises and is diluted, watered down. It blends in with its surroundings like a chameleon. You can't even tell the difference between the church and the world around it. It speaks to the world with such deference, with such fawning sub- submission, such respect that it ends up having absolutely nothing to say to the world. And so Jesus says that a man or a church like that, a family like that, has become absolutely useless. It has lost its invasive, radical character. A biblical example of that is the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. They became tasteless salt. They blended in so well with their idolatrous neighbors in the land of Canaan that they became almost completely indistinct from the pagans. Now listen, you do not want to be a church like that. If we become a church like that, the book of Revelation says that Jesus Christ will come and snuff out the lamp of this church. He will come and shut us down if we become so saltless that we absolutely we are absolutely indistinguishable from the unbelieving world around us. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done and is doing 
to the mainline churches that have abandoned any semblance of faithfulness to the Scriptures or faithfulness to the saltiness of God's truth. All of the statistics say that those churches are absolutely bleeding out. New believers and unchurched people are not impressed with churches that do not believe anything. Mark it down. Look at the numbers. And much more importantly, Jesus Christ is disgusted with them and spits them out of his mouth like lukewarm tap water. That's what he says. A saltless church is a useless church. And he will shut it down. What would a hidden light Christian or a hidden light church look like? Well, think about the purpose of light. The purpose of salt is to infiltrate, change, flavor, preserve. The emphasis, the purpose of light is to expose, to invade, and to eradicate darkness. And if that's what light does, then a hidden light Christian or a hidden light church does not expose or invade or eradicate anything. It is hidden under a basket. What does that mean? What does that look like? What would a church look like that does not bring to its community the characteristics of light? I think an excellent way to describe a hidden light mindset is Christian tribalism. Christian tribalism. It's a mindset that confines Christian truth within the Christian ghetto, within the Christian subculture. It has an us-against-them mentality. It's a, a church with a hidden light complex tries to hide within itself. It has its own language, it has its own music, its own television, even its own yellow pages. I was looking online the other day and I found, I ran across this uh, ad for a Christian car dealer. You know, where you can come and even buy your car from someone who's a Christian because after all, you don't want to rub your shoulders ever with someone who's not a Christian. You don't want to rub shoulders or do business with a pagan, that would be unwise. So I'll, I'll, I'll even go out of my way to buy my car from a Christian. I saw online this week also, there's a whole group um, of Christians that are trying to take over the state of South Carolina. Have you seen this? <laughs> What's that? Yeah. <laughs> they, they are trying to move Christians into South Carolina, vote for you know, themselves, and make a nice theocracy in the state of South Carolina. I mean, it makes... It makes perfect sense if you are a hidden light Christian, if you're a Christian tribalist. So the tribe, the church, becomes a fortress in which the faithful hide. This kind of church, you know, it sets a guard at the door. doesn't let anyone in who doesn't speak the language or know the secret passwords or the secret handshakes. It's the kind of church that sets up rules that the initiated all follow, that everyone knows. Maybe they're even unspoken rules, how to dress, how to speak, how to vote, how to educate your children, you name it. And these external rules become the membership badge for the club. They become the war paint of the tribe. It's a fascinating example of this. You, you all know what I'm talking about. Let me read something to you. Something that comes from a little book <clears throat> written by a Christian in the 19th century. And uh, he's, uh, he's an Englishman, and he's, he's attacking the evils of drinking. All right, now, if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, bear with us. We are pretty silly sometimes, all right? And, uh, and here's an example. He's, uh, he's uh, attacking the evils of drinking. Listen to what he says. 
He says it must be evident to everyone that the practice must render the frame feeble and unfit to encounter hard labor or severe weather. While, as I have shown, it deducts from the means of replenishing the belly and covering the back. Hence succeeds a softness and effeminacy, a seeking for the fireside, a lurking in the bed, and in short, all the characteristics of idleness. Drinking fills the public house, makes the frequenting of it habitual, corrupts boys as soon as they are able to move from home, and does little less for the girls, to whom the gossip of the drinking place is no bad preparatory school for the brothel. At the very least, it teaches them idleness. Amen, right? Amen. The evils of drinking. You know what? He's talking about drinking tea. He's talking about drinking tea. And the book that this comes from is a book, uh, it's a how-to manual on how to homebrew your own beer. All right? So then it was tea, you know? If you don't drink tea, then you're a good Christian. You can be in the club. And the Pharisees in the New Testament are the perfect example of that kind of tribalism, hidden light religion, where they construct hundreds of rules protecting just the Sabbath alone. And when Jesus suggested that God had and could and would work in the lives of those who were not in their club, who were not Jewish, they literally tried to throw him off of a cliff. They would not stand for it. Now think about it. Which of these two options, tasteless salt or hidden light? Which do you think our church, this church, and our families, your family, struggles with? I think the main temptation that comes to us in our church and in our families is the temptation to be hidden light. We will always be facing the temptation to be saltless. But we will give in more often, I think, to the temptation to be hidden light. Because we have solid truth, we have a solid grasp of the cultural issues like the sanctity of life, the roles of men and women in God's universe. We have a love for theological clarity and a desire to uphold the absolute, unbending, eternally true authority of God in the Scriptures. We are not mainly tempted as a church. Many of us as individuals and as families will be tempted to be saltless Christians. But as a church, we are tempted not to compromise and dilute the truth. We are tempted to erect high walls and keep others out. We are tempted to circle the wagons. And when we do make attempts at evangelism, we tend to do it over the walls. Over the walls, lobbing things from inside out. From inside the fortress, we tend to have very little voluntary association with people who are not Christians. We don't choose to have fun with unbelievers. We don't choose to get in social relationships with them. We are certainly don't tend to have genuine friendships with them. And we use Bible verses to support that. The companion of fools suffers harm. Right? Bad company corrupts good morals. And we tend to long for a golden age back in the day when everyone was a Christian and everyone thought just like us. South Carolina. The 1950s. We are more tempted to be hidden salt than we are tempted to be saltless light. I'm sorry, hidden light than we are tempted to be saltless salt. Saltless light, that would be interesting. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's the same exact temptation that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That the Corinthians absolutely had fallen into. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. 
This uh, 1 Corinthians, by the way, he's going to say something in here that might throw you for a loop if you haven't heard this before. 1 Corinthians is not the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He refers to an earlier letter that we don't have as Scripture, but it's another letter that he had written to them. He says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Right? Amen. Don't associate with those sexually immoral people. We can't stand them. We can't hang around them. We don't want to have anything to do with them. So I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, right? Look what he says. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world and have a Christian yellow pages and a Christian car dealer and a Christian state. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Now, can you hear, can you hear the, the astonishment in Paul's voice as he writes these things? He says, what in the world were you thinking? Did you actually think that I meant for you to stop associating with the world? Is that what you thought I meant? That is the opposite of what I meant. You cannot possibly remain faithful to Christ and remove yourself from contact with your immoral, greedy, swindling, idolatrous neighbors. You can't possibly obey Christ and cloister yourself. But you see, that's exactly what we do, isn't it? It's exactly what we do. We cloister ourselves, we huddle together in our conservative, evangelical, white, reformed, highly cultured enclave. And the tragic thing is about... The tragic thing about this is that all the while we congratulate ourselves for how pure and unstained and obedient we are. If Paul saw us, he would be appalled. He would say, what in the world are you thinking? And when Jesus does see us, he is appalled. Because Jesus never hid himself in the safety of the familiar. He left his father's throne above. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He left everything that was familiar and he plunged himself into a fallen world. And once he got here, he did not surround himself with nice, conservative, balanced, normal people. Who did Jesus surround himself with? Terrorists? Yeah, zealots, they're Jewish terrorists. If you didn't know that, it's true. Wanting to overthrow the government of Rome. Jewish terrorists. He surrounds himself with terrorists. He surrounds himself with tax collectors. The lowest of the low. Prostitutes. Drunkards. Sailors. And you, know all, you all know how sailors talk, right? But we in our purity and wisdom, as if we are more pure and more wise than Jesus Christ himself, avoid all of those people. And we see our avoidance as a mark of godliness. Instead, of a mark of unbelieving, fearful, self-centered disobedience, which is exactly what it is. Let me show you what the right picture looks like. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm sorry I'm keeping you skipping around this morning. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want you to see what salty Christians look like and what 
blazing light Christians look like. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 8. This is Paul's description of himself and his companions, Savannah and Timothy. And what he's doing is he's talking about how he and his companions, what they were like when they first came to Thessalonia. Listen to what it says. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Here's the model. These men are both salty and shining. Look at their saltiness. They are bold and open with the truth. They do not water it down. They do not alter it to make themselves more popular or to avoid persecution. Verse 2, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of, the, of God in the midst of much conflict. Verse 3, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive to water it down, to make it sound better than it really is, or easier than it really is. Verse 4, we speak not to please man, but to please God who trusts our hearts. Verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery, telling you you're really okay, everything's alright. Nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. We did not want to be respected we did not want to say the things that would be respectable. We did not come trying to get glory from you. We didn't care about whether you liked us or not when we preached the gospel of God to you. Do you see the saltiness of these men? No loss of flavor, no compromise, no trimming of the truth in order to make it look good or to make people like them or to avoid persecution or to get rich or to fill the walls of the church. There is no hint of sanding off the sharp edges of God's truth. And at the very same time, they're not hiding out among their own people, people who already agree with them, who are already just like them. He's talking about when they first came to this town, these people were pagans. Listen to what he says. Listen to this light. Verse 7. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her children. Not like soldiers in a fortress making occasional sorties into enemy territory, but among you, like a nursing mother. Verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, not, you know, reluctantly biting the bullet and spending time with these unwashed pagans, at a distance in order to soothe their conscience about this whole evangelism thing, but affectionate desire to be with them as people. 
He says, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, not just shooting the gospel of God at you from outside there, you know, from inside the fortress, shooting the gospel of God at you. We weren't just sharing the gospel with you, but also our own selves. Not just seeing these people as prospects. To share the gospel with so that they'd get saved and be just like us and become notches on our Bibles. But ready to share our own lives with them. He says, you had become very dear to us. Not valuable as trophies to show how spiritual we are because we won some converts, but you as people became dear to us. You are made in the image of God and we love you. Do you see the blazing light of these men? There's no, there are no baskets, there's no fortresses, there's no tribalism, there's no self-centered, self-protecting, self-righteousness. There's no ingrown toenails here. These men are in the world, among the pagans, loving them. Enjoying them, sharing their lives with them, sharing the gospel with them as they share their lives with them. And that is what it looks like to be both salt and light. And we do not do this because we love ourselves. And we love comfort and ease and we love pleasure more than we love God. And we refuse To submit to the fact, the reality, that God has not called us for our own comfort. He has called us to join Him on the mission that He has fully engaged Himself in. Let me read one more verse for you, and we need to be done. Romans 15, 7. Just listen to it. This verse is designed to melt us by the mercy and the grace and the welcoming generosity of God so that we will become merciful and gracious and welcoming and generous. Salty salt and brilliant light. Romans 15, 7. Therefore, he says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And you think about this. How did Christ welcome you? Did He welcome you after you got yourself shaped up? Did He hide in the fortress and say, you come to me and then I'll welcome you? Is that what He did? Did He say, make yourself like me first and then I'll welcome you? Is that what He did? These words and this table shout to us of the grace and the forgiveness and the open-armed, welcoming kindness of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Will you look at that goodness full in the face? Will you celebrate this table that tells of the this Savior who came to earth, clothed Himself with flesh like yours, Let that flesh be broken and His blood spilled so that you could be welcomed by God into His family, into His presence with gladness and fullness of joy. Will you look at the goodness, this goodness, full in the face and be melted and changed by it? Or will you curve in on yourself and fester your life away in your Christian ghetto? 
there's forgiveness for us. Because we have all sinned in this way, haven't we? There is forgiveness for us. But it's not just forgiveness that lets us continue. It's forgiveness that demands that we obey God. Let this table shout to you of these things. Let this table remind you and melt you. Let me pray with you. Lord, this table.